everyone, and welcome to We Effed Up. I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And we are on your bi-weekly feed, I guess, uh, going through all of the times in history where we, as a people on the planet, have effed up. What are we talking about this week, Cody? You know, like 38 episodes, I think you've had 38 different openings. Well, that's what I'm here for. Uh, today, we're, if you remember correctly, you uh, guessed dead on what it was going to be last time. Berlin Wall. Yep. Got it. Nailed it. Follow the Berlin Wall, yes. Yep. Uh, a symbol of, probably one of the most potent symbols of the Cold War, uh, both during its construction, during its fall. So, but we'll get right into it. Uh, so, after World War II, uh, Germany was divided into four occupation zones, each controlled by a different allied power. France, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States. Right, to keep uh, to keep Germany in check. Yeah, and there's a little map of it, so you see they're all mm-hmm. color-coded. And then you see, like, right here is Berlin. Right, and that's it's, also divided up into four different spots. Yeah, it's similarly div- it's divided up in the same way as the rest of Germany was. Uh, but it was kind of awkward because it was deep within the soviet zone of control in east germany and that the the way it was set up was never meant to be permanent uh a permanent solution was supposed to be you know uh, a few years later once something was found to be agreeable between all four uh, occupying powers but of course three of them agreed one of them did not mm-hmm Disputes between the Soviet Union and the other allies led to the division of Germany and East Germany, a puppet state of the Soviet Union, and West Germany, which was the other allied zones, uh, unified into a single state in 1949. And as I mentioned, it kind of led to an awkward situation because now West Berlin is deep within East German territory. Uh Uh-oh. And you can kind of see how it is in this map I'm showing you. It's similarly divided. Yeah. Yeah, that's a whole problem. Yeah. Can't really have a a state that's divided up. I mean, I know that this is city size, but you can't really have one divided up in four ways that is in the center of other controlled territory. Yeah. Awkward. The awkwardness would become uh, very apparent quickly in 1948 when the Soviets blockaded Berlin. Whoops. Uh, The uh, Berlin blockade, which led to the Berlin airlift later that year. Because uh, the Soviets said they'd cut off all the land routes into the city, but it was kind of hard to cut off air travel into the city. So the United States just airdropped supplies into West Berlin for months on end until finally the Soviets were like, all right, well, this is proving to be pointless. Uh, so they ended the blockade, but it, it very it, uh, highlighted West Berlin's very precarious situation. Right. Uh, the repression inherent in the Eastern Bloc countries controlled by the Soviet Union was also present in East Germany, and so many East Germans attempted to immigrate to the West. These immigrants came from all walks of life, including educated professionals, leading to a brain drain in, Eastern Ger- in East Germany. Between 1945 and 1952, the border between East and West Germany was largely open. As a result, over 2.5 million people fled East Germany for West Germany in that time. Jeez. And it's just over seven years. In 1952, in an attempt to crack down on this migration, the East German government began fortifying this border, which was called the Inner German Border. Right. A 10-foot-wide plowed strip was made along the entire border, 
Barbed wire fences at checkpoints were constructed, and anyone living or working within three miles of the border had to have a special permit to do so. Right, right. It's it's sort of like living on or living near a military base, except way more intense. Yes. Because, yeah. like, getting on, well, American military base, anyways, getting on, you have to, like, go through a checkpoint. There's barbed wire fences. Yeah. There's an MP there. They have to check your ID. You have to have credentials, et cetera. But you don't have to have a permit to live nearby. Right. That's what I'm saying is, like, it's more intense. I mean, I mean, hell, right, Pat, Riverside is a, literally across the street. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so. I know. So, um, but traffic into West Berlin was restricted, but remained relatively open. East Germans would get around the inner German border by making their way to West Berlin and then traveling to West Germany proper. This was the West Berlin loophole. Oh, whoops. Yeah. Way to go. By 1961, over 3.5 million people had left East Germany, about 20% of its population. Jeez. So like one in five people have left. It's uh, It ain't Disneyland, folks. Nope. It should be a pretty crucial uh, indication to you that it kind of sucks over there. Yes. The East German government decided on a course of action that would create one of the most potent symbols of the Cold War. Constructing the Berlin Wall. Yep. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. In the summer of 1961, discussions be- between East German and Soviet leadership began trending co- toward constructive... Uh, uh, blah, 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 Just blah, start blah, blah, over blah. from that beginning of that thought. In the summer of 1961, discussions between East German and Soviet leadership began trending toward constructing a more restrictive border in Berlin. On August 12, 1961, East German leader Walter Ubricht signed the order to close the border and began construction of a wall. The next day, East German troops closed the border and construction began. The initial barrier was barbed wire, but soon the infamous concrete wall began to take shape. The wall completely encircled West Berlin, over 96 miles in length. Jeesh. The wall wasn't entirely a concrete barrier, but also consisted of wire mesh fencing and used existing buildings where possible. A large strip of no man's land was cleared in between the wall and East Berlin proper. This was to more easily sight those attempting to escape. The wall was just under 12 feet in height and had over 300 watchtowers. So here's an image of it from the West Berlin side. You can kind of see like that bit of no man's land yeah. uh, between like like the buildings and mm-hmm. the actual wall. And you see like all the graffiti that the West Berliners have put on it. Right. And here's like kind of a more detailed like wall. Here's West Berlin. Here's East Berlin. Here's all the stuff that's in between. There's like the guard paths. There's the checkpoints. There's like the barbed wire fences. There's the anti-tank stuff. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a DMZ. Yeah. So. Kind of, which is funny because demilitarized zone is uh, not an accurate description. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. DMZs are also oh, it was kind of weird, especially like the Korean DMZ. It's like that's like the highest concentration of troops anywhere in the world, and calling it the DMZ is not kind of a misnomer. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, movement was restricted to only a few checkpoints, like the infamous Checkpoint Charlie. Right. Uh, that was one of them. The wall had the intended effect. Immigration from East Germany to West Germany was greatly reduced. However, the wall became a rallying cry in the West against communist tyranny. Well, yeah. It, it's like the... It, I mean, it's not made of iron, but it's kind of the embodiment of the Iron Curtain. 
Yeah. So it's literally keeping people in. Yeah. And not letting them and not letting any new people in. Yeah. West Berliners, as I said, covered their side of the wall with graffiti. The wall was used as the backdrop for several famous speeches, such as John F. Kennedy's 1963 declaration, Ich bin ein Berliner, which, contrary to popular belief, does not mean I am a jelly donut. Oh, it doesn't? No. Really? No. It means I am a Berliner. That's it. (laughs) Um, That's not what my German teacher told me in high school. My German teacher was wrong. And Ronald Reagan's 1987 challenge, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. In the late 1980s, several musicians performed concerts at the wall, highlighting the lack of freedoms of the East Germans, including David Bowie, Bruce Springsteen, Springsteen, and Germany's favorite American singer, David Hasselhoff. Yeah, Dave, don't hassle the Hoff. Exactly. Let's fast forward a little bit. Uh, 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev comes to power in the Soviet Union and began reforming the Soviet system through his policies of glasnost and perestroika, openness and economic restructuring. So now it's going to be like, you know, we're, we're going to be a little more open, maybe have a little bit of capitalism come in, you know, because the Soviet system by this point was really starting to... Be a cracks drag. were really beginning to show. Be a drag man. Hmm? It was really being a drag man. The Soviet system was a drag. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm just using the, the nomenclature of the time. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, this included loosening of Soviet control of Eastern Bloc countries. And I'm not exaggerating. It was called this. It was called the Sinatra Doctrine. Because each country was allowed to go their way. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty great. Yeah. Sinatra, he persists. Yeah, yeah, yes. We literally just watched an episode of Sopranos with uh, Frank Jr. on there. Yeah, which is so random. Because yeah. what else has he ever done? I don't even know. Is he a singer? He was. I mean, he died a few years ago. But, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, he, he was. Oh. So. I literally did not even know he had any kids. I just knew that Frank Sinatra. Nancy Sinatra. Yeah, I I thought that was his wife. So I don't know anything about Frank Sinatra. He plays very little role in my overall life, eh. except for my way, which the the first version I ever heard of that was the Sex Pistols version, anyways. Which, funny enough, was uh performed around this time period. So yeah. relevant. Simultaneously, native movements began rising in those countries advocating for greater freedom, such as the Solidarity Movement in Poland. The dismantling of the border fence between Communist Hungary and Democratic Austria in May 1989 sparked a wave of migration as thousands flocked to Hungary in order to escape to the West. On October 18, 1989, Erich Honecker who had led East Germany since 1971, stepped down due to ill health and was replaced by Egon Krenz. Egon. Yeah, the only Egon I can ever think of is yeah. from Ghostbusters. But well, he's the best Egon, so yes. Egon Spangler. Of, of the two, yes. Under immense pressure, Krenz and the East German government began drafting a policy to permit tr- limited travel to West Germany in hopes of stemming the flow of East Germans fleeing to the West through Hungary and Czechoslovakia. On November 6th, 
Prinz published the new regulations, which were insufficient for the increasingly irate populace. Whoops. The Politburo, who was like the people, the committee in charge of the, of the government, began drafting a more relaxed policy where East Germans could apply to immigrate or leave the country on a more permanent basis. While this would appear to be a more open policy, citizens still had to apply and could be rejected for travel. The new regulations would take effect on November 10th, giving the government some time to pre prepare for the movement of people and the influx of applications. At 6 p.m. on November the 9th, a press conference was held to announce the new policy led by our referrer for today, Gunter Schabowski. 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 Schabow. Uh, let me give you a, a picture of old old Gutner, Gunter here. Old Gunt. There he is. That's him at the press conference. He looks like a ball of joy. Yeah, uh, well, eh, seems like it. I'll elaborate on his background here. Uh, born on January 4th, 1929 in Auckland, Germany. Studied German journalism at Karl Marx University. Mm. And became an editor of a trade publication after graduation. Uh, he joined the SED, which was East Germany's Communist Party, in 1952. He became editor of the party newspaper in 1978. It's like, it's just kind of funny. It's like the communist college to communist journalism pipeline. <laughs> yeah. Like, what else was he going to do? Yeah. It's like, he was never going to be you anything. You study journalism? Well, there is only one paper in the country, so you must work there. Okay. You sound like the lady from Austin Powers. What lady from Austin Powers? I forget. Oh, what uh, Frau for Frau for business. Yeah, you sound like Frau. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you go to a communist college, the two things that you can do are be a journalist for a communist paper or be a politician for the communist party. Yeah, well, I mean, you, or or you know, control the means of production. A, yeah, yeah, be a bureaucrat in the in the in the government machine, Isn't I guess, that, or, is... or run a run a plant or something, or. I you mean, know, be I a manager. Yeah, like be involved in the government. That's that's all I can think about. Yeah, because yeah, those yeah, are the it's... two things. Like you most likely are not going to become a doctor or a nurse. Well, I mean, you could. I mean, they needed doctors and nurses too. Yeah, but that seems like something that you wouldn't learn at Karl Marx University. I mean, I might just be named after him. Doesn't mean like you know. I mean, they named all their colleges after like communist people where they could. So doesn't necessarily mean that. You, know, you couldn't get a medical degree there or something, but anyway. Oh, okay. So the University of Leipzig was Karl Marx University. It was just called that from 1953 to 1991. Yeah, so, so, they, they, so they just renamed the stuff. Yeah, but I, I'm just saying, like, when you say something like Karl Marx University, it doesn't necessarily engender a full scope of study. Hmm. Unlikely that they're going to have things like liberal arts probably not they probably would have like philosophy arts. or not communist arts but like philosophy or communist philosophy yeah well i mean what they're going to teach is going to be you know approved by the party but i mean it doesn't mean they're not yeah you know, trying to be a lawyer or, or a doctor or something like that but. prior to that it was uh it was actually a nazi university well i mean the, the period preceding this was a meet was world war ii so yeah <laughs> and not in the third reich so i mean that makes sense yeah they took it over and canceled all jewish degrees yeah which well, is pretty that crazy surprise me but anyway we're getting off track uh Shabowski, uh he was a member of the volkskammer 
1981 until its dissolution. That was the East German Parliament. He was appointed as first uh, secretary of the Berlin, the East Berlin branch of the Communist Party in 1985, as well as a member of the Politburo. And he typically served as the, as the government's top spokesperson. Because he's the person there in Berlin. Berlin he's the person there in Berlin. Uh, he has experience dealing with the press. I think they're press secretary. Back to this press conference. It was broadcast live on TV and radio. So, so everybody's you know, listening in on this. Shabowski had not been briefed on the policy discussions beforehand, simply reading the policy based on a note that Krenz had given him. Near the end of the press conference, Shabowski was asked for clarification on when the policy was, go, was to go into effect. And this is where he F's up. Now, uh, row, row. the note from Krenz had not indicated when the new policy would, would go into effect. So he improvised. He said, quote, As far as I know, it takes effect immediately without delay. Uh-oh. End quote. That's why you never give a speech or a press conference on something that you have not priorly been briefed on. Yeah, and it's like, you know, maybe he should have looked this over before giving this press conference. Say, hey, hey, Egon, when's this supposed to take place? Well, like, when does this go into effect? And so the government has not now not had time to prepare. You know, because that's why they wanted this delay. They wanted time to prepare, get all their guards in place, get all the bureaucrats and the and the passport offices in place yada 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 right right so uh saying this it it caused a stir among the press pool and shabowski likely realized his mistake when he was asked what the policy meant for the berlin wall shabowski gave a rambling nonsensical answer and ended the press conference that's what happens to me when i get put on the spot during a presentation give a rambling nonsensical answer well of course yeah well as word spread, thousands of East Germans, East Berliners in particular, began gathering at the border checkpoints demanding to be let across because this guy had just said it takes place immediately without delay. Right, exactly. Which would mean right that moment. Yep. The East German government had no time to prepare for the influx of people, and so the border guards were overwhelmed. No one wanted to be the person to open fire on a massing crowd. So the border guards began letting East Berliners across into West Berlin with no opposition. The first crossing occurred at 10.45 p.m. at the Bornholmer Strasse checkpoint. Dang, okay. Whoops. Uh, West Berliners were waiting on the other side, ready to welcome their brethren. Soon, crowds began picking at the wall itself, tearing down chunks of it. The East German government tried to get a handle on the situation, announcing 10 new border crossings, but it lost any effective ability to control or monitor crossings. On December 23, 1989, free travel between East and West Germany was implemented. So there's the following morning, people just atop the wall. Yeah, I've, I've seen that footage before. Yeah, it's an, like, like I said, this is very iconic, especially like in front of the Brandenburg Gate. Um, yeah, definitely. So... Official demolition of the wall began on June 13, 1990 and lasted for several years. On July 1st of that year, East Germany adopted the West German currency, and on October 3rd, East Germany unified with West Germany, ending 45 years of separation. Dang. Way to go. Yeah, so this kind of just set the dominoes in motion. 
at least for Germany. Uh, Schabowski, after reunification, worked as a journalist and became a supporter of the center-right-wing CDU party, which is kind of odd considering the fact that he was a communist beforehand and was supposedly left-wing. So he basically just did a 180-degree heel turn and joined like a right-wing party. Whoops. Yeah. Uh, But along with several top East German politicians, he was charged and convicted in the late 1990s for various crimes committed during communist rule. He would eventually serve a year in prison. Schabowski died on November 1st, 2015 at age 86. His headstone is made from a piece of the Berlin Wall. Interesting. Okay. The wall itself has survived in numerous pieces, scattered in museums around the world. I know you and I have seen multiple pieces of it in museums. Yeah. I think the news... the. You know, not there anymore. Museum in D.C. It had a whole border checkpoint. Yeah, which is cool to see. The um, the Air Force Museum in Riverside, Ohio, had pieces yeah. for a time. I'm not sure if they still have a piece, but they had Maybe. a. I don't know. They had a uh, like Germany divided section. It was yeah. tor- it was in their Cold War hangar. Uh. Over its existence, approximately 100,000 people attempted to escape over the wall, with about 5,000 making it across. Approximately between 156 and 200 people died attempting to do so. The wall had come to symbolize the Cold War. Not long after it went up, the conflict reached its most dangerous point, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the Cold War ended not long after the wall's fall. While pressure had been building on the Eastern Bloc regimes throughout the 1980s, and in 1989 in particular, nothing symbolized the end of the Cold War as the people atop the Berlin Wall tearing it apart. Nearly all the nations behind the Iron Curtain held free elections in 1990, many of them throwing off the communist yoke. The Warsaw Pact, which had held the countries together in an anti-NATO alliance, was broken in July 1991. And on Christmas Day, 1991, the Soviet Union was dissolved into 15 independent countries, ending over 70 years of communist rule. Merry Christmas. Yeah. And there have been some discussions in Germany about um, making November the 9th a holiday due to this. But because it's also the same day that the Kaiser abdicated at the end of the First World War. Mm Mm-hmm. But conversely, it's also the anniversary of Kristallnacht. Right. So. And in America, we wouldn't do it. It's too close to Veterans Day hmm. in America. So well, Veterans Day is November 1. We wouldn't do it anyway because it wasn't our country. But. Well, I mean, we celebrate D-Day. It's not we a federal were, holiday. We, were, we but... were directly involved. Yeah, but I mean, we were kind of semi-involved in separation of East and West Berlin. Yeah, I guess. And dissolution of the Soviet Union. It's like Columbus Day. It's not Columbus Day anymore. It's Indigenous Peoples Day, but it's like it also didn't have anything to do with us. Just saying. Yeah. Columbus Day exists because the Italian Americans wanted a holiday. Well, and now Indigenous people have that holiday, so. Yep. All right. Well, sources uh, for this episode Brian Crozier. The Rise and Fall of the Soviet Empire from 99. Gareth Dale, Popular Protests in East Germany from 2005. John Lewis Gaddis, The Cold War, A New History from 2005. 
Hope Millard Harrison driving the Soviets up the wall from 2003. Womp womp. That's a hell of a pun. Yeah. Mary Ellen Surratt, The Collapse from 2014. And Victor Sebastian, Revolution 1989 from 2009. Uh, again, a little feedback. Podcast to recommend. Uh, somewhat topical. I'm sure they'll uh, the host will get to this towards the end of the show. Um, history of the Germans. The Germans. Yeah, straight up history of the Germans. Go listen to it. That's that's probably a pretty interesting uh, deep dive, though. Germany has had a storied history. I mean, not even just in the past two centuries, but like yeah, for over time, thousands of years. We Um, just—I mean, World War Two is just in the the most recent memory, but yeah. Uh, And then there is something else I want to recommend. Something I started recently. A little personal pet project. Nothing big. It's just a Twitter feed where I just go around and I catalog and do a little blurb about all those little roadside historical markers you come across. So just go to Twitter, look up a historical journey. You'll see it as a photo of the Ohio historical marker logo on it. So it's a historical journey, like 23, a his journey 23 or something. I post or try to post daily, you know, just photos of these markers, uh, that I've actually gone to. Um, I'll just go online and get the pictures of them. And I do a little video, like, you know, show you where it's, where it's around, you know, and I, and I just do a little blurb about it. So nothing big. So but just, you know, I'd appreciate if you go follow it. So there you go. Cool. Uh, what are we talking about next time, Cody? We are talking about Ibn al Alkami and the 1258 Siege of Baghdad. 1258 you said yes 80 yes jeez throwing it way back is that our earliest episode no no we've talked about stuff from the bcs before oh yeah this one 1258 mongol invasion so you get mongols you get inept advisors so fun you get iraq again for the second time in three episodes uh whoa yeah so nice all right Please be sure to check out our other projects, The Drunken Pawn, where we play board games and drink on YouTube, uh, Attack of the Final Girls, my sister podcast project with my lovely pod wife, Juliet, where we talk about horror movies. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at WeEftUp, no spaces. Be sure to rate and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, I'm Teresa. I'm Cody. And this is We, we Up. Up.